Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Welcome back to IIB Bank Talk for the second half of our conversation with Jean Ludwig and Art Angelo of Promontory. Let's jump right in. I, I want to come back in a moment to your, um, you know, global view. A couple of questions about that, but first, just you know, about the these cycles and you know the pandemic has certainly uh talk about a cycle like a quick you know entered it like overnight basically with the shutdown and then the ramifications of that and um you know maybe yeah i know your book um the vanishing american dream which i think is coming out like towards the end of september yeah, September 16th, as a matter of fact. So I assume it was written, you know, before the pandemic, but m that many of the things that you're pointing to were seen play out in a very accelerated fashion. And it, it might be an opportunity to experiment with some of the, you know, remedies that you um, propose. Um, you know, in one sense, the uh, uh, the uh, the fact that the pandemic came for purposes of understanding what's said in the book. If there's one teeny weeny little bright spot of the pandemic, it's that because what the book was in fact largely written prior to the pandemic, but they they delayed publication dates, so I was able to write a long prologue that basically ties the two together. And what, the, uh, what you said is exactly right, Bridget. What the pandemic has done is make crystal clear what we attempt to make clear in the book about the impacts uh, of, um, of being uh, in, low, in the low and moderate income bucket. But, but interestingly enough, uh, low and moderate income people who one would have guessed would have been doing better um, in the uh, pre pandemic period, uh, we're really not doing particularly better. Um, the, the numbers were closer but, uh, than they are today, but they were still uh, depressing. And, and, and there are a number of ways to think about the problem. So uh, low and moderate income folks have had wage increase in real terms if you use CPI over the period 2000 to 2020, just 2019. But, but those gains are overshadowed by the increase of, in costs of what is most needed um, to, um, to uh, advance in the society if you're low and moderate in income. Healthcare costs are up more, educational costs are up more, housing is up more. So the basic uh, things a low and moderate income person needs to pay for to advance, most notably education, being healthy and, and living in a decent environment, 
have been going up faster than actually the wage increases, even during good times. Um, so, so it, it has been a really a, a, a time of struggle. Uh, and you can see it if you interview uh, low and moderate income people in terms of their own um, uh, a sense of well-being. They feel uh, endangered uh, and they're angry. Um, uh, and, and they have a right to be uh, uh, angry. You can see it physically if you go to towns like I grew up in, uh, York, Pennsylvania, which is a town uh, in Amish country, uh, Pennsylvania, where no bank closed uh, during the uh, Depression. Uh, there was a mixed uh, farm and industrial town with famous local businesses, York Dental Supply, York Air Conditioner, um, York Barbell. By the way, uh, if I had used York Barbell with a little bit more aggressive effort as a young man. <laughs> I, I, I'd I have had a whole different career, Gene. <laughs> I, could have, I would have been a lot better off. But those, those businesses, by and large, are gone. And, um, uh, and the town looks at and that's true too much all across America. Um, so uh, there are things we have to do. The book itself makes that bridge because of the delayed publication date. Uh, 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 but the recommendations are as um, appropriate today as they were um, when the book was gotten together uh, largely in the winter and um, of um, 1920. Well, that's a great segue to, you know, speaking about sort of where um, middle, mid, smaller towns, you know, Main Street is um, today. Know that, you know, Vice President Biden just released his economic package uh, over the past couple of weeks. And one, perhaps the only theme it, it shares uh, with the policy of the current administration is a turning away from globalization and free trade, which is certainly, you know, worrisome for, for international banks. You know that President Clinton, under whom you served, embraced free trade as a vehicle for economic growth, um, pushed NAFTA through despite the misgivings of many in his own party. Just, you know, what's your what's changed in and with that, you know, the the passage of time? Um, what's what are your views on this? And, you know, if 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 you could go back, would would you have um, changed the or or what what's your thoughts about Clinton administration and then sort of you know that over those next years this real embrace of globalization are there things that we should have done differently? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of this um, conversation. Bridget, I myself am a big internationalist and, and, uh, and uh, you know, believe in globalization. If you look at the banking industry, by the way, it is, uh, you know, in a sense, proof positive that globalization works. We really have had a marvelous situation uh, where financial institutions have worked uh, in different countries and uh, we've had uh, bringing together of the rules and the rule making mechanisms and Basel and other things we could have a really globalized system, which I think benefits all mankind and uh, fundamentally and um, 
and also uh, is a real antidote to wars and disagreements, et cetera. Um, uh, having said all of that, which I think uh, uh, is a good position from a sort of maybe ethical or you know, overall well-being of the globe position, uh, the fact of the matter is globalization is unstoppable anyway. If you look at the technological developments we're all living through, um, uh, and by the way, I neither entered, uh, invented the internet nor the cell phone <laughs> or anything else, <laughs> but I've lived through this like everybody else. The, um, uh, uh, this is only at the beginning uh, uh, stages. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, I'm a co-managing partner of what's turned out to be the largest venture capital fund in the United States for financial technology. And we're focused on the development of technologies that actually help banks. Um, and um, and there, uh, uh, that's an explosive area. Uh, and the, by the way, there are no borders. Uh, and there not, will not be borders because the nature of these technological mechanisms are, are inherently global and uh, will be used globally and young people will use them globally whether we like it or not, thank goodness. So, so um, trying to stop globalization um, is, um, uh, uh, is, um, is hard to do happily and, and will not really be done. And I don't think the uh, Biden folks uh, uh, believe it ought to be stopped or, or whatever. Having said that, like any innovation or change, we've gone through a lot of change in the global stage. Um, the pendulum always swings far and any innovation creates uh, some toxins that have to be dealt with. Here, what globalization has done, as it's really gotten started uh, in the post-World War II period, has been enormously beneficial for developing nations and employment in developing nations. But it has created difficulties in um, uh, low and moderate income employment in developed nations. You can, not everyone, but you can see it not just in the United States, but you can see it in other developed societies. And that's created a lot of pressures. Um, those pre pressures and the, uh, the unhappiness uh, in terms of having, you know, more difficult times, not better times, which I reflect a bit in the book, The Vanishing Dream, uh, are legitimate and they have to be thought through and dealt with. Uh, that isn't a reason to stop globalization, but it is a reason to be thoughtful about the externalities that it creates anything that's good, any drug, medicine, nothing's perfect. It doesn't, it's not a magic wand to solve all things. And one has to deal with the externalities these things create that are um, challenging. And, and uh, so uh, whether it's the Biden administration or a, or a second Trump administration or whatever, or uh, you know, administrations in non-US countries that are have, gonna have to be thoughtful about their populations, those parts of their populations which are disadvantaged uh, by um, uh, uh, certain steps in the global process. And we have to be serious about that. It's not sustainable to basically have large portions of the population without meaningful employment and without an opportunity to advance, but instead have to live with the reality of going downhill every day. Uh, but I believe they can be dealt with. I believe we have to find ways to deal with them without uh, doing um, 
uh, uh, real damage to a global world. Uh, and as I say, in any case, we've got to face up to that because uh, globalization is really uh, part and parcel of the technolo technological age we're living through. Well, as you know, um, the IIB and its members, of course, are think, but strong supporters as well as, um, you know, facilitators of the benefits of globalization for both uh, here in the U.S., helping to bring investment and jobs into the U.S., as well as helping U.S. companies grow here by expanding their international markets. But I want to close with a, this question um, to Art. Uh, you, you know, pointed out, Gene, the um, kind of both convergence and uh, improvement, uh, resiliency, robustness of international bank regulation through uh, the Basel Committee, the FSB, you know, all the different supervisory colleges now. And <clears throat> I'll say, you know, we, we won, uh, maybe frustration is not too strong of a word, um, that the foreign banks have here in the U.S. is, um, you know, the, the, larger, uh, the larger banks now are required to have intermediate holding companies that are, you know, really ring-fenced here in the United States to kind of, you know, protect the system here. And then we have the branches, which are branches of a foreign bank that is regulated in home country and is, you know, for at least for IIB members, you know, all um, home countries and home country supervisors that are active members of these groups. Um, yet we still feel as if there is um, kind of a reluctance to recognize the parent bank as a source of strength. And there's periodically talk about trying to, in some way, you know, almost ring fence branches. I mean, obviously you can't really put capital requirements on branches, but through some, um, there's been some discussion, um, even the Fed asked about it in the tailoring proposal, you know, putting um, stronger liquidity requirements around the U.S. branches of foreign banks. So Art, I'm curious, really interested in hearing your thoughts as both, you know, the work you do now and wearing your fad, Fed hat, um, you know, what what do you think about those proposals and why might the Fed be so, um, you know, interested in pursuing that? Thanks, Bridget. So um, um, I, would, I would echo Gene and in, 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 as someone who is very, has been over my career, very involved in international issues as a member of the Basel Committee as a uh, actually as a member of the FSB expanded secretariat under Mario Draghi, you know, very committed to international banks and banking. Um, and I think what the Fed struggles with is, um, I think a lot changed after the 2008-2010 the crisis. And part of that was um, 
the Fed did what it had to do and did the right thing in providing dollar liquidity to all comers, um, foreign banks, U.S. banks, and the Fed didn't do that as the pure goodness of, it, goodness of its heart. You know, the dollar is a, is a reserve currency, uh, and, and the Fed did what it had to do to maintain the stability and access to dollars. Unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of um, folks in Congress on, on both sides of the aisle didn't like the fact that the Fed was exposing, in their minds, the U.S. taxpayers to the risk of lending to foreign banks. Um, so that was a reaction, you know, in, 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 in Dodd-Frank. And I think to your question, Bridget, it, it could have come out could have come out worse. And I think the Fed struck a middle ground. Um, yes, they were forced to put the IAC requirements in. Um, but the liquidity requirements that you refer to at the, at the branch level, again, the Fed took a middle ground. There's a 30-day requirement at the IHC level um, and, and for U.S. domestic organizations to maintain you know, 30 days of um, or cover 30 days of cash outflows based on a stress test. And for branches, they have to conduct the same you know, for certain large foreign banks that have large operations here, not all foreign banks. They have to conduct a stress test, 30-day stress test. But again, they only have to cover 14 days of, uh, of, of outflows. So the Fed could have been more severe. I think they tried to take a middle ground. Um, at its heart of hearts, I think the most at the Fed are internationalists as well. And certainly pre-crisis, the, um, the approach of the Fed was to, you know, to not treat branches as distinct entities and to rely on the parent as a source of strength. Um, but that changed the crisis. The Fed came out came out whole, luckily, or, you know, fortuitously or skillfully, <laughs> didn't lose money on lending to foreign banks and programs or lending to the window, you know, lending to the discount window. But uh, as I said, I think a lot of folks in the political class don't like the fact that foreign banks can access the Fed window and the Fed facility. And that's the trade-off um, that exists, you know, uh, and unfortunately that's, I think, what the Fed has to deal with. It, so, you know, two things. One is, um, you know, the Fed now has the swap lines in place with almost all of the foreign yep. central banks, right? And, you know, that, and, and they've been used throughout this, you know, pandemic. So, you know, that might address at least some of that, um, some of that concern going forward. Yep, well, you cannot transfer the, the credit risk to the foreign central bank, right? And the Fed's right. risk of the, of the of the foreign central bank. So I think you're right, but um, but we'll we'll see. And I think you know, I, th I think it's hard for me to imagine a situation where the swap lines would replace any potential lending or access to the well, Fed definitely. that foreign banks operating here would enjoy. It just yeah. seems to be maybe maybe a bit much, but we'll we'll see. Right. It, it, look, it may be that this crisis may be, because we don't know, we're in the midst of it, uh, uh, gives the uh, uh, non-U.S. banks operating in the United States a leg up in this discussion. Because, uh, uh, you know, uh, if uh, uh, your members and our friends at the IIB get through this crisis, uh, continuing to support the U.S. economy, uh, uh, and without real problems, it may be an ideal opportunity in the years to come to try to have um, a rules that are more felicitous for um, non-U.S. banks. 
Uh, we, won't, we don't know that. It's, we can't shoot at this target right now anyway because other things are present. And furthermore, we don't know how things are going to work out. But I'm rather hopeful they will. It is deeply in the interest of the U.S. economy <clears throat> to have non-U.S. players here that are active in the U.S. market, non-U.S. banking players that are active in the U.S. market, as it is vice versa outside the United States. Uh, uh, internationalization, globalization of financial institutions, particularly banks, is, is hugely beneficial. There, I would hope that we would do a couple of things which should ease um, this, the, the tendency to want to ring fence. Um, one, um, the fact is that central banks have done a good job, but are still not wholly comfortable with dealing and relying on their foreign counterparts. Swap lines is head, head in the right direction, but there's more we can do by way of international rules, international treaties, you know, um, uh, you know, antidotes, you might say, to a ring-fenced mentality, which is detrimental. It's detrimental all, all over the world. It's inefficient. Um, uh, and those inefficiencies are paid for in terms of being able to support real economic activity. Um, wh whether or not we're going to be able to make these advances, I think will depend a bit on how we get through this crisis. But, but thus far, um, uh, things are encouraging. Uh, uh, Non-U.S. bank activity in the United States has been uh, very helpful uh, and not problematic. Um, uh, and I, I always encourage banks, Bridget, whether non-U.S. or U.S. Uh, the same way. Helping to support the economy in a prudent way, including low and moderate income people where there are CRA op obligations that are applicable, is actually a very good thing in terms of trying to integrate non-U.S. bank activities into the reality of the U.S. economy and vice versa abroad. Um, and, and, and frankly, the track record for many non-U.S. banks is excellent in the United States in this regard. Uh, but that, that is, um, you know, I know these things tend to be, you know, pains in the neck, annoyances, sometimes uh, not uh, common in a, a non-U.S. bank's local uh, experience, but I remember very much myself working with the leadership of Deutsche Bank when we were doing the merger, encouraging them to understand the environment in which they were um, going to be existing more actively than the past and doing a good job of embracing uh, that um, new set of realities, including at the very top of the house and recognizing their own ongoing responsibilities in that area and doing a good job at it, that, that will pay dividends. <laughs> so I'd recommend that uh, now and, and, and uh, being prudent, but there's there, I think, potentially opportunities ahead to, um, to soften this ring-fenced uh, uh, set of attitudes, which has grown up over the last couple of years, which is not helpful. Well, that's certainly one of the IIB's missions is to um, do, you know, help to tell the story of non-U.S. banks operating here and their role in supporting, you know, uh, companies and communities all across the country, all different um you know, market sectors, because it is a good story. And 
you know, a lot of foreign banks, you don't see them on the street corner. And so there's not as, you know, the same level of familiarity and understanding of the role. So on that happy note, um, we'll, we need to wrap this up, but I would love to ask a lot more questions. Who knows, maybe this will turn into the uh, Gene Art IIB Bank Talk series, but thank you so much for your time and your thoughtfulness, um, your insights that you shared with us today. And Gene, we're all looking forward to, um, to reading your book. So thank you. Thank you, Bridget. Honored to be on uh, your podcast and uh, wish everybody, uh, you know, health and well-being at this difficult time. We're going to get through it. And I'm dying to sit down with uh, your members of one of your wonderful conventions and uh, share a glass of wine and, um, and uh, you know, uh, enjoyment being together in happier times. So, you know, blessings on everyone and, uh, uh, and uh, look forward to being together soon. You as well. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.